0: Miss the show no worries on point and on the podcast. Justin Trudeau apologizing again, this time for skipping the first National Truth and Reconciliation Day. And he says he'll now make amends with indigenous leaders who already distrust the government. So he's atoning for missing his day of atonement. Are indigenous leaders buying it? You may want to start your Christmas shopping early this year. Supply chains around the world are a mess and not getting better. And the warning is that shelves may be empty because demand's going up and supplies aren't coming in. And Justin Trudeau announces his vaccine mandates, but it is very confusing, riddled with loopholes, and just adds to the confusion of what is now turning into a whole patchwork vaccine policy right across this country. Get talking. This
1: is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio.
2: Traveling on September 30th was a mistake, and I regret it. The first National Day of Truth and Reconciliation was a time for Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people alike to reflect and connect, think about the past, but also focus on the future. I want to thank uh, Chief Casimir... Of the Kamloops uh, for the conversation we had over the weekend, in which I apologized for not being there uh, with her and her community uh, for this important day.
0: Prime Minister regrets a mistake that was not a mistake, it was a bold faced lie. Alex Pearson with you on this Wednesday, October 5th. Hope you're doing well. Here we go, midweek, thank goodness days and week uh rest of the week should be downhill from here on out but once again Judeau just full of regret his uh screw-ups i guess i i can't i can't even keep count now where we're at but uh so numerous he didn't even actually wait this morning to be asked for an explanation about tofino before he even took questions today he came right out and said regrets you know i've had a few but uh is he sorry, or is he sorry he did not get caught? Because he didn't actually use the word sorry at all. He used words like regret, he used mistake, but he did not actually say he was sorry. And, uh, And when he was asked, you know, like, what made you go on a holiday on that day? You know, the day your government set aside this National Truth and Reconciliation Day. Like, who in your office thought this was a good idea, he said?
2: It was a mistake to travel on that day. Um, this is an important moment for Canada and for Canadians to reflect not just on the past, but on the present. Um, I was uh, in error uh, to choose to travel on that day.
0: I'm sorry. No, 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 he did not say sorry. So sorry. No, 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 he's not sorry. He regrets. He erred. He mistaked. Look. Uh, Trudeau, or any leader for that matter in his position, are surrounded by teams of people who, their only purpose in life is to make sure that they don't step on a landmine. So they think of problems before Trudeau even forms a thought. And then they report those issues or any scenario that could become a problem to Trudeau's staff every single day at the crack of dawn, period. And so Trudeau is saying that he made a, quote, mistake, which this is not, but Let's just pretend, for this sake, that it is. Like, how did it not get flagged? But why did you do it? And did anyone advise you not to do it?
2: I think the how it happened is far less important than that it happened, uh, which I regret. The siren seems to be the word.
0: Yeah. The how very much does matter. Like, how did this happen? Who on the staff thought the holiday was a good idea? How was this decision made? Did it, was it made by Trudeau? Did his staff advise him that maybe it was a bad idea? Or did Trudeau ignore their advice? And who instructed the prime minister's office to lie to the media repeatedly all day long about this ill-thought trip? So yes, the how matters. But then you wonder, like, how is this a mistake because when I think of a mistake, I'll, you know, a mistake would be putting your underwear on backwards, right? A trip to Tofino for a prime minister or any prime minister or world leader would require actually a series of carefully scrutinized plans. Things like security, scheduling time off, filling the private jet, reserving an $18 million bed and breakfast. This was not a mistake. It was a well-orchestrated plan that blew up. And during questioning today in French, Trudeau was asked, you know, why did you lie about the itinerary that day, to which Trudeau said, there were no lies, which is another lie. Trudeau's itinerary had him in Ottawa in private meetings all morning, not at the beach or having a beer on the patio in Tofino. So clearly Trudeau experiences his screw-ups differently, and he will get away with it because he always does. And I actually thought he got off pretty easy today because he wasn't pressed at all to explain the unexplainable. Like, why is this a mistake when what this was, was a categorical lie that the prime minister's office then tried to cover up? Lies, yeah! and And that's become all too predictable with this scandal-plagued prime minister. And so Trudeau said, you know, we've got a lot of work to do, making amends with indigenous leaders across this country. Well, no, Mr. Prime Minister, you have work to do, because the rest of us were doing what we were supposed to do on that day of atonement. You have work to do. This is not a we thing. You screwed up. And yet, here we are. This this first national day of atonement now has been turned into Trudeau's atonement tour, where he's going to have to now try to fix relations in indigenous communities that were already in tatters. And what's the reaction from indigenous groups? Well, the Native Women's Association of Canada put out a statement saying, quote, we recognize that this moment of contrition comes after much public pressure, not necessarily because you've suddenly seen the light, end quote. Ouch. I mean, the truth is actions speak louder than words. And Justin Trudeau has lousy judgment. And he can't bring himself to apologize for any of his long list of screw-ups. But his latest mistake will not matter either because his legion of apologists will just continue to find ways to reconcile for his bad behavior. So sorry. But he is just not that sorry.
2: Traveling on September 30th was a mistake. And I regret it. The first National Day of Truth and Reconciliation was a time for Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people alike to reflect and connect, think about the past, but also focus on the future. I want to thank uh, Chief Casimir of Kamloops for the conversation we had over the weekend in which I apologized for not being there uh, with her and her community. Uh, for this important day.
0: Trudeau coming out today. He's got regrets. He has a few. He made mistakes. But when I think about mistakes, a mistake would be uh, forgetting to take out the garbage. A mistake would be forgetting, you know, your keys outside the car, whatever. It would not be a family trip that would require weeks of planning by many people in Mr. Trudeau's office. So. You know, the fact that he's calling this a mistake and that he has regrets is great. But what he did not actually say today is sorry, and certainly not to all indigenous groups in this country. And he couldn't explain when asked how this could even happen on the very day his government set aside for the first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. But he did say that he has lots of work in amending things with indigenous leaders. So basically this first day or National Day of Atonement has been turned into Justin Trudeau trying to repair relationships which were already in great disrepair. And um, the National Chief of Assembly of First Nations, Roseanne Archibald, said a few days ago, hollow words will not work. So are the words spoken today seen as hollow? Let us ask. Melissa Mabarkey joining us now, a policy analyst and outreach coordinator over at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute and a member of the Treaty for Nation in Saskatchewan. Good to have you, Melissa. Yeah,
3: thanks for having me back.
0: What was your reaction um, to the comments the uh, Prime Minister made today?
3: Well, they're not really surprising. I mean, he had to make a statement, you know, sometimes after September 30th for his actions. I mean, he... There was a lot of public uproar about this it wasn't it didn't just come from the indigenous communities, but it also came from people who were wondering why he lied on that day and it just left a lot of us with more questions than it did answers
0: um The Native women's Association of Canada um, noted uh the the comments and said quote, "We recognize that this moment of contrition comes after much public pressure, not necessarily because." you Have suddenly seen the light. Um, the prime minister didn't actually say the word sorry. I looked at the clips a few times thinking that he had said that. He used words like mistake, he said words like uh, regrets, uh, but he did not actually apologize. And when he did, um, you know, comment on, on relationships, he really only spoke about the one particular um reserve in, in Kamloops, BC. It wasn't in my mind, unless it's seen differently by you, an apology to all Indigenous people in this country. No, and the reason why
3: I think he apologized to that uh, First Nations community was because he declined to invitations. And that's the only reason why the apology went there. But it didn't, it didn't come to the rest of us in Canada. Um, you know, we were hoping that this day would be a day for us to move forward but in actuality what happened was we ended up moving 10 steps back because he wasn't present on that day and you know it just it it really really makes me wonder what reconciliation looks like on his end because we had our door open we were ready we were ready to move forward and this just put us back in so many ways.
0: And so there was a lot of backlash against the media when this story was first reported by those who remained loyal to this prime minister, but even more so surprisingly against Indigenous people, even like yourself, who spoke out against this. Were you surprised by that?
3: I wasn't at all. Um, You know, what was really great about that week was we had an opportunity to tell our stories. Uh, We were out there on radio stations. We were on TV and we were bringing in awareness, um, you know, to residential schools and this was all more or less like a build up to September 30th and we thought for sure, you know, we're going to have some recognition, we're going to have, you know, we weren't expecting an apology but we we wanted some concrete steps on how we were going to move forward So all of that was really disappointing and I couldn't let it get to me that day because Mm -hmm. I had my own members in my community who were sharing their stories. So they were kind of going through, you know, they were reliving the trauma and I had to be there for them. So I couldn't be angry and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't express that anger for them because, you know, they were sharing, uh, you know, an intimate part of their life. So it was disappointing. It was really angering from many, many communities out there. And we're just asking the question, why? Like, why did you do this on that day?
0: And we didn't really get a clear answer on that. Um, And the prime minister said, you know, the how of this doesn't really matter, which I actually think it does matter a lot. How could this have happened, especially on this particular day that he himself put aside for this first, um, you know, annual uh, really, a day of atonement, and um, and so moving forward, can this be repaired, um, or do you feel that that the that the day has been set back, or the ha, ha, can it move forward? I mean, when you start off, you know, a relationship based
3: on lies, um, which is what he did throughout the day. I mean, it doesn't set a very good precedence for anything going forward, because if you're unwilling to even acknowledge the day on the day like on September 30th not on September 29th like on the actual day I mean that just that just makes it look like you're in it for the optics and you're not really in it for reconciliation and it just really really um it's set a bad tone for anything going forward I don't know if it's repairable I'm hoping it is but When you start off in that way, it doesn't make the rest of your journey um, very easy.
0: Certainly not when relationships um, are, I think, gentle is not the the right word, but uh, fractured, um, maybe more apt. But, you know, there is such a uh, fractured relationship between Indigenous people in this country uh, with government. um, Certainly this doesn't help. And so... What needs uh, to happen with the Prime Minister moving forward as far as uh, setting the tone and, and, and really, I mean, he wanted to build, as you know, Melissa, his legacy on truth and reconciliation. I don't know if that happens here, but it's got to be more than just a legacy. There's got to be tangible change. And so what needs to happen now for, um, for Indigenous people to um, be more trusting or, or for him to gain the trust back?
3: Well, I would start with the Truth and Reconciliation Calls to Action. I mean, if he truly believed that you know he wanted to rebuild the relationships and allow communities to heal, I mean that would be the first place I would start. The second place I would look at is our water crisis. You know, start you know putting more effort into that and ensuring in the next five, four or five years that half of the communities on that list are removed and have clean water like let's set some goals and let's see how much work we can do in the next few years and let's get some targets completed you know and that's really all we're asking for is that relationship to be able to get the work done.
0: No question about it. We'll see where this takes us because, um, as you know, uh, the the strategy here will be to make this headline go away, and uh, I'm not sure if it will, but certainly the Prime Minister would like it to happen. Is that the same sentiment in Indigenous uh, communities across this country, is just uh, let's move on now?
3: It's, you know, we've been, actually, we've been wanting to move on for a really long time, you know, and we can't do it when we're constantly up against a brick wall, So if he wants us to move forward and, you know, he wants that day to just kind of go away, then let's start doing some work and let's, you know, start building and let's start building up some of these communities and getting them up to par with their infrastructure. So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done, um, but it's doable. You know, if you just, you know, put your hand out and say, let's do this together, we're more than ready to move forward.
0: Well, actions will definitely speak louder than words in this situation, certainly. We'll see if the Prime Minister lives up to his uh, promise of action. Melissa, always appreciate your time and the discussion we have, so thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. That is Melissa Mobarki, and she is a member of the Treaty 4 Nation in Saskatchewan, so we'll see what the fallout is in the coming days to see if the Prime Minister will be forgiven and if we can move onward and upward from here, but... That will entirely, I think, be up to him. Hey, do not rush out to buy up toilet paper. That is not why I am talking about this issue. But we are being warned that uh, we might want to start our Christmas shopping early this year. And that is because, as we have talked about a lot of times on this show, our supply chains are a mess and a lot of the things we may want or need may not be available in the coming months, and it's due to a number of factors. We've got the major disruptions to supply chains at a time where demand for products just keeps going up. And then we've got other problems. Goods that can be shipped are then arriving at ports that are backed up because there aren't enough truckers to pick up the sh- you know, the goods to ship them out. This is not just about getting stuff. It could have a real domino effect over the coming months, driving up prices on goods and, of course, further driving up inflation. John Keogh is founder and CEO of Chantella Oil. He's also an expert in all things global supply chains and a professor of practice at McGill University. Hey, John.
4: Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me.
0: I was uh, telling my husband, I'm like, if ever there were a time when I need a global supply expert, and I got one, and um, I mean, who thought that this would become such a hot topic? But it's an everyday headline now.
4: Yes, absolutely. In fact, Alex, um, I've been arguing uh, recently that uh, COVID just uncovered problems that were under the surface that needed to be addressed and mm-hmm. were not addressed. And one of those big problems, of course, is uh, what's called strategic dependency, where a country like Canada is dependent on China for 376 uh, different commodities. And now strategic dependency means we buy more than 50% of what we need from China, and China mm-hmm. controls 30% of the world supply chain. So when things go wrong in China, as they are today, then the, you, you mentioned the domino effect. I call it the cascading, uh, you know, cascading effects of mm-hmm. system failures. And that's exactly what we're, we're dealing with right now. It's very complex systems.
0: Okay, so is this China holding things back, not being able to produce stuff in time? I mean, what, 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 like, if everything's central to China, what is the big kind of uh, bottleneck?
4: Well, there are a number of things in China. They have some natural disasters, uh, you know, flooding, rain, and and stuff. They had also, uh, you know, typhoons that uh, closed the port for three days. And now the Chinese government is stepping up on the sustainability side and trying to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions. So there are brownouts, uh, power cuts for factories in some provinces, and President Xi is holding the state, uh, the different states in China to account for reducing their carbon emissions. So essentially, you know, there have been rationed power. So that's part of the problem. But the bigger problem, Alex, is on the demand side. Not, not necessarily, you know, there are issues on the supply side, but on the demand side, essentially since early last year, the mm-hmm. the world supply chains have been in peak mode. Normally, we'd have you know the peaks and the troughs, and we'd be able to catch up in the in the troughs in the relaxed period. But we have we have constant peaks every month is a peak.
1: That's the issue.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. And it's interesting. I mean, the Chinese is now caring about the environment all of a sudden, which uh, you said well, when you said that about China, I thought, well, fine, if this is going to cost us all more because of China, first of all, diversified trade out of China, but put a carbon tax on all things that come in from China and um, make them pay back, uh, you know, the cost that this is going to actually create globally. And sadly, as you know, small businesses, uh, which right now from here until Christmas, this is like their only time to make up for margins that they have just been battered over, but they will carry the brunt of this.
4: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, when you look at the supply chain world and logistics, you you operate with contracts, so contracts for shipping and containers and also uh, for supply. And and some of those contracts are coming up. So a lot of the costs have been actually absorbed by the operators. I was listening to a video of a U.S.-based onion uh, uh, producer and he said they have 35% extra costs. Uh, and once the wow. contract is up, is, is over and re- renewed in the next month or so, they're going to pass those on to consumers. So this is going to hit us square between the eyes over the next number of months as these contracts in logistics, supply chain, shipping, and also between supplier and, uh, and retailer. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it always ends up falling on the uh, little guy and, uh, you know, it just—it's just it's just never-ending hits uh, to the bottom line. But then you look at the situation, um, I was reading out of the UK, I mean, they're in a situation where they're running out of fuel and running out of food. Um, is that tied to this and could we see stuff like that start happening here? Because that really will send people into an all-out panic. You saw what happened at the beginning of this pandemic when the word toilet paper was mentioned and all of a sudden it's like everyone bought a thousand rolls.
4: Yeah, that's true. The U.K. is in a somewhat different situation. If we look at the Five Eyes report on strategic dependency on China, they have actually the lowest dependency on China, uh, much lower than, uh, than Canada or Australia, U.S. and New Zealand. But if you look at their problem, it's partially, uh, to a large part, but not entirely, due to uh, the, the remnants of Brexit. So mm-hmm. essentially, uh, before Brexit, the cry in the U.K. was, well, the foreigners are are taking our jobs <laughs> And now, uh, post Brexit, they're saying, "Well, we we don't have foreigners to do those jobs that we don't want to do." So mm. you have restaurants uh, like chicken restaurants uh, in the UK who are loaning restaurant staff to chicken processing factories to get chickens out the door. Mm. And just just last week, um, Boris Johnson, the PM, he signed a temporary visa for 3,000 poultry workers who come from mainly from uh, from Europe, and also 5,500 drivers. And these are the jobs that people don't want to do. So there's this anti-immigration issue, but that's gone away now because British people won't do those jobs.
0: Yeah, interesting. Uh, and, and as we've talked about uh, before, John, um, you know, we're, we're running out of certain foods as well. Like you can't get noodles uh, out of the Philippines. So we're starting to see those things here. But, you know, we do rely on China a lot more than the UK does. And so how... Much worse do you suggest, um, because you can't fix this overnight. It's not like we can build new supply chains and diversifying trade. It it actually takes some planning and forethought, which this current government hasn't really seemed to have put in. How much worse is it going to get and how long is this going to last?
4: Well, you could break it down by commodity, Alex. And it's not just China. It's also, you know, we get a lot of products from uh, Vietnam and Thailand and other countries. And they're struggling right now with, uh, with COVID. So what a lot of people won't realize is that for coffee, Vietnam is actually the second largest producer in the world. You know, you think of Brazil and Colombia, but Vietnam produces twice as much as Colombia. And of course, it's Robusta coffee, right? You know, Arabica coming from uh, Brazil. But Vietnam is also the number one exporter of cashews. So then you have to look Mm. at it from the cascading impact. If you can't get those products, what is uh, coffee used in? Of course, we, we, we drink it, but it's used maybe in other products as well. And you have uh, cashews as well, and there's six other commodities that Vietnam is the number one exporter for. So it'll go right across um, furniture, electronics, and many many other products. Now even with the Apple iPhone 13 that yeah. many yeah many people are hoping to get for Christmas, the mm. they, they got you know real fancy new cameras, but the components for those come from Vietnam. So they're not going to get those. So if you're hoping to get a new iPhone 13, you may be out of luck. If you're hoping to get that popular toy for little Johnny, uh, you'll probably be, be out of luck. In fact, a U.S. Uh, toy manufacturer said that they have canceled the idea of ordering for Christmas, and now they're ordering for uh, for Easter. Because even if they wow. could get the shipment in time, the shipment costs per unit are so high, they would just throw money away.
0: Jeez, it's time of year. I guess a lot of parents will be buying their kids a... Uh crafts and, and woods, wood, wooden toys like we played with when we were uh, locking different. what was it locking um, what are those uh, locking logs or I think they used to have us play with but boy oh boy alright well consider yourself warned folks John I appreciate your time
4: no problem thank you Alex
0: that is John Keogh who is of course an expert in all things supply chain and having him on more and more these days because these headlines are starting to appear more and more
2: These travel measures, along with mandatory vaccination for federal employees, are some of the strongest in the world. Because when it comes to keeping you and your family safe, when it comes to avoiding lockdowns for everyone, this is no time for half measures.
0: There you go. The Prime Minister delivering, I think, what are half measures? Measures that certainly are very confusing. But uh, today the Trudeau government announcing that the federal vaccine mandate riddled with loopholes that will be combined with this patchwork of provincial vaccine rules across the countries, is is coming into play uh, and will do so for federal employees by end of month. So you've got a month um, to get vaccinated, end of October, or by November 14th, you could be home uh, or taking an unpaid leave. And there are exemptions to this. I mean, the military, CRA, Service Canada employees and contractors. I mean, there are a lot of people that are exempt from this particular mandate, but there are so many questions about it. Like, how how will it be policed? According to the prime minister, uh, they're going to use the honor system. So I'm not sure how any of this will work. I just think there's a lot of clarity uh, missing from it. Ryan O'Connor, a partner over at Toronto-based Zayuna Law Firm, joining us now. Hi, Ryan.
1: Hi, Alex. Good to be with you.
0: So this was an election issue. It was a wedge issue, um, you know, and now we're seeing the policy part of it. And I think it's very clear that this was made up on the fly, which I think is part of the reason why it seems so confusing. I mean, but the bottom line is we have rules all over the place And there's no streamlining on these quote-unquote vaccine mandates. Well, it seems
1: that the political theater that we saw during the campaign with respect to vaccination policy has turned into a cocktail napkin public policy after the campaign. Um, As you quite rightly mentioned, Alex, there are a lot of sectors in the broader public service that will be exempt. Um, Individuals, uh, of course, who have religious or medical reasons or experience a disability preventing them from being vaccinated will will be properly uh, exempted, um, and it looks like the federal government's going to be encouraging federally regulated employers that are uh, directly employed by or directly involved with the public service to also have vaccination policies. Um, but this is what it is. It's not. This is a country that has 82. percent Uh, vaccination uptake in terms of fully vaccinated individuals. And it's hard to see why there's a need for mandates at a time when vaccination uptake has been so high, some of the highest rates in the world we see in Canada. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And again, um, I don't know how it's going to be policed. I mean, they're, they're actually making people who are already working at home uh, take the vaccine. Um, I'm not sure, you know, if you've chosen not to take the vaccine um, then you're working from home. But now even those people will have to get the vaccine or do they go on unpaid leave.
1: Well, it all of a sudden seems that with the implementation of this policy, that uh, the virus that causes COVID-19 can somehow be transmitted via Zoom call with uh, uh, with your fellow members of the public service. It, it's, uh, it boggles the mind why the policy... It, leave aside the fact that the policy should even be implemented. It it boggles the mind that this policy is being implemented for individuals who are working from home. Um, Federal public servants have demonstrated during the course of the pandemic, uh, the bulk of them who work in a professional and office setting have been able to work from home, so it it, it doesn't stand to reason why those persons should even be vaccinated. And again, that, that ties into the, the political theater, the cocktail napkin aspect of this policy, Alex. It doesn't seem to be well thought out. It's going to be rife with challenges in terms of uh, both legal challenges, potentially in the courts, as well as uh, um, grievances under the collective agreement for uh, those public servants that are, um, uh, that are unionized. So uh, it's going to create a whole whack of legal problems for the Prime Minister and his attempt to, to engage in political theater.
0: Right, uh, but PSAC, which is the largest public sector uh, union in this country, um, is uh, furious about this. They say they weren't consulted on it, but then it begs the question, where were they during the 36 days where this was, you know, marched around every second of the day? So they knew it was coming, yet they didn't raise any concerns about it then.
1: Well, it's upsetting to see that, uh, you know, that's the case now. But at the end of the day, uh, it does look like I saw an interview earlier today where, uh, one of the representatives of the public sector units did indicate that they'd be supporting employees who uh, who required support who would be uh, uh, affected by by the mandate and placed on on unpaid leave. Um, I think this should be really ultimately, Alex, seen for what it is. And it's a, another attempt to increase vaccination rates. You know, the government tried the uh, carrot approach for so long, it feels that all of a sudden it's appropriate to use the stick approach. Now, the Prime Minister's behavior during campaign demonizing individuals, both within and outside the public service, who are... Uh, reluctant to be vaccinated or who cannot be vaccinated uh, his behavior uh, you know was to be quite frank uh, appalling and it's unfortunate to see that that government has decided just to, to to continue with that strict approach I don't think it's convincing anyone who may be hesitant or, or unable to be vaccinated to uh, totally make the decision to to get vaccinated and it also undermines the broader public policy yeah I don't understand why the prime minister you know isn't celebrating a vaccination uptake instead of undermining it, saying, well, it's not enough. We we need this mandate uh, in order to to avoid lockdowns. Well, you know, the vaccination rate speaks for itself. And it's really unclear to me, aside from, you know, the, the political reasons that, that he's been very clear about why he needs to implement policy at this time.
0: Right. I mean, this was this was a weaponized uh, wedge issue during the election, and that was what it was. It was political theater. To your point, I don't understand why there's just not one federal mandate. If we're going to do a mandate, why not just do do one at the federal mandate? So it's streamlined, it's simple, it's easy for people to understand. If we're going to do one, otherwise, right now we got rules all over the place: the municipal level, at the uh, provincial level, and at the federal level. And again, I don't know how it's supposed to mesh.
1: Well, I think that begs the question whether or not there even uh, need to be mandates. With vaccination rates, voluntary vaccination rates so high in this country, there's only about, the Prime Minister's office today said, uh, 82% of the population is fully vaccinated, meaning only 18% aren't. Um, This is uh, not the time to be imposing mandates. It's time to be rolling back restrictions. It's the time not to be demonizing um, our fellow citizens who, for very valid reasons, may not be in a position to be vaccinated by reason of their medical situation, their religious belief, a disability they experience, or because they they just wish to wait. Um, It's really, uh, you know, I think the question shouldn't be, well, let's have you know one mandate throughout the country let's avoid a patchwork of policies and loopholes the real question is we should be asking why we have these mandates in the first place they're uh are right for a legal challenge there are significant constitutional issues when these mandates don't provide for broad exceptions for people who cannot be uh cannot be vaccinated um and we should be questioning why the government's implementing a policy which is effectively saying as a condition of your employment to work from home in the public service that, um, that you need to take medical treatment that you're reluctant to, to treat. Those are the very real issues that uh, that individuals are experiencing. We also should think about this is a government that has repeatedly defended the public service, championed them uh, during the campaign, saying other parties would, would not support the public service. Yet you know, The prime minister is implementing a policy that would fire potentially thousands of people who have devoted their lives to this country. That, I think, is one of the, the real issues that, that we're really not focusing on when we're discussing these mandates.
0: Well, let us see where the fight goes from here, because there's another fight coming around the corner, and that is children under 12 being forced to get mandated vaccines. And uh, that, I think, is a whole different fight that we will talk about on a different day. Ryan, always appreciate your time. Thank you for it.
1: Good to be with you again, Alex. Thank you.
0: That's Ryan O'Connor, who is with uh, Zayuna Law Firm and uh, taking a lot of these cases. So if you think you've got one, give them a call. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.